But welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. This week we've got our – this is the first time I've sat down with someone from our team for a proper in-depth chat, get to know you, and I think what I want to do out of this, Millie, we'll just start to, like, introduce you. Now, I, I really think uh, – and we've chatted about it over the last couple of weeks since you started, had a really good session with Kendall earlier this week, and it was around, like, where is our community, how are they turning up, and a podcast is a huge part of it. It's not all we do, but – Ultimately, it's kind of the box that we get thrown into is what I love about podcasts is that people can take it wherever they want. So we put it out to the world. We're having a one-on-one conversation and then people can take it wherever they want. They can take their own takeaways and it kind of feels like they get to eavesdrop on a conversation. So for me, it's like, and if you look at the last month, we've we've got in a stadium of 20,000 people and they're all listening to just us chat. How's that going for cooling the nerves? Yeah, no, it's good. I can take it. (laughs) (laughs) But no, Millie Nolan, Amelia, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Welcome to our team and welcome to chatting to the community for the first time. Thank you, Ollie. It's good to be here. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That felt very (laughs) on the radio. (laughs) Which way are we taking it? So, like, well, I think let's kick off with why... um, Obviously, you've joined the team literally just towards the end of June. Mm. First time you, we're actually sitting down. It's something which was how I got the chance to actually talk to you about the job for the first time, was, which I, I was definitely genuine about, wanting to chat to you on the podcast and get you on to understand your story. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Not the way you took it. <laughs> I'll tear your motives. <laughs> no. It was, um, well, like, yeah, I think there's going to be lots of people who are going to resonate with you and your story, but I actually think your story is probably going to evolve beyond just one episode. So mm. I think today it's let's get to know you, but then also I, I don't think it's like a start and stop. We're not trying to cover everything in 45 minutes because I think what I'd love to understand is, yeah, a little bit about who Millie is, the influences of agriculture, the work you've kind of previously done, but also too what it was um, around humans of agriculture, what the impact is you want to make here as part of what we do, but also too like what it is you want out of your work, and so people actually understanding. I think what's so Im- what's so important for our community, but I'm going to say the broader sector. We're we're like quite a unique little crew um, and business, and we are really shifting that narrative. And so I think for us, it's so important for our community to get to know the people behind it and understand what's driving us. But I'd love to know. So whereabouts is home for you? Um. Oh, I find home such a hard work because I think home for me is people. I don't think I've ever fully tied myself down to a geographic location in terms of home. So home is around my loved ones, which now they have all sort of migrated back to where I grew up, which is absolutely right on the border of Victoria and South Australia. But then, I don't know, I'd also call home here right now. I'd call home Western Australia where I've spent most of the past six years and that probably feels more like home than home home. So, yeah, I think home is home is people for me, not necessarily a location. It's really interesting. You know how we're chatting about the acknowledgement of country? We, when I did the Australian Rural Leadership Program, there was one session which absolutely rattled me to the core and everyone says, like, yeah, you'll learn a lot about yourself. The question which threw me was we did a session with an Indigenous fella. We're sitting on country down in Gippsland on... Oh, do you remember... Gunai Kurnai country. Anyway, and he said, um, just want you guys to take a few minutes, but we're going to go around the circle, there's 30 of us, and I want you to chat about where you belong. 
And it, honestly, like coming, being, and we've chatted about it a little bit this week with different students, but being that kid from Sydney who's like definitely involved in agriculture, that question of home and where do you belong is a big one. Yeah. So would you say when you put home and belonging in the same parcel, where do you belong? Where do I belong? What makes you feel like you belong? I think I feel like I belong when I've got purpose when I'm around people who I feel like I can genuinely be myself, be my quirky, idiotic, smiling, whatever it is, self and not have that judgment. I I feel like I belong when I'm learning. I don't know. Belong's a really difficult one. I am. I'm a big one in me personally. Is I'm, I'm like naturally an optimist. So I think for me is like I can. You can belong anywhere. Really, I think it's a mindset. And so, why why have you chosen agriculture? What is it that has drawn you in? Yeah, I I guess my roots. You know, I grew up on a, on a small sheep property on the border of Victoria and South Australia. But I really don't think it was my father being a farmer and both my parents coming from properties were actually on my mother's um, property where we grew up, but it was actually him also being a shearer. And I think I loved that raw, hard work, like authenticity of and the history of what, you know, sheep wool, the merino is for Australia. So I guess certainly my roots, but I went well off that in, in high school. I wasn't encouraged to study agriculture whatsoever very much um, encouraged to study physics and, and things that... Nerd. My God. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> yeah, it was, I could, you could say I was a bit of a nerd. Um, but then I think going forward, as soon as I needed to have a gap year and, you know, earn a heap of money straight back into agriculture, seasonal work, and then it was the people. And I think if I look back at my, you know, very short career... And think about what I've enjoyed and what's made me show up. It's the the people. Really interesting. I was up in Darwin not long ago and we had a, a big agricultural event. There was probably like 400 or 500 people. And one of my mates brought her boyfriend along who operates a crane and he was just blown away. He goes, this is what agriculture is. Like, you guys just, you're so lucky. Like, look at all the people here. Look at this network. You're all showing up because you love it and you're you're part of something. I was like, yeah, wow, like we maybe we take that for granted. Yeah, like I reckon and like my old housemate Jacko when he he was in the construction industry as well and he was like the mentoring opportunities, like the leadership opportunities, the different conferences and stuff. He's like construction has nothing like that. Yeah. And they're jealous. Yeah. I actually reckon we do take it for granted. Oh, for sure. And they should be jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Working in the best industry in the world. Yeah, come on. <laughs> and I th- like to that as well, it is really interesting, like, the access that we have to people, oh, like, yeah. through agriculture. Yeah. Um, it, it feels like in Australia, like, anyone is accessible. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Like, we literally, well, you pay me, but we get paid to talk to people. <laughs> really, at the end of the day, that is core of our business is, is storytelling and it's, it's humans, which is, yeah, pretty special. Obviously, there's parts of that in different parts of the industry, but I think what's unique to us is we have access to, like you say, the CEOs all the way through to, you know, the farmers, the shearers, the truck drivers, like people that are, you know, doing the grunt work on the ground all the way to the researchers, the engineers, the technology, everything that's actually a part of it. Mm. I think we'll get to that. I'm going to put a hold on that. I want to understand more about you in the shearing sheds, your old man. So was he shearing full time? 
No. So I think it like, so around absolutely our land got settled in, I think it's 330 acre blocks. And so a lot of farms now are just them all bundled together. And yeah, dad just was shearing as a, as a young fella. And then, yeah, as he got older, obviously had the farm, but had, had time as well. My mum's a nurse. And so she was working away a lot and I'm the youngest of four kids. And so yeah, my older siblings were off at school and I'd follow, follow, I call my dad Joey. I followed Joey around in the, in the shearing sheds. And so went off with the wives and Got to eat all the cake probably. <laughs> Rolled around in wool and that was my days. That's, yeah, that's literally how I spent my first few years of my life. What, like, what's your earliest happiest memory of agriculture? Mm, that's hard because I actually have a poor memory of my childhood. Like my sisters, my brother, they f- they remember so much more than what I do. I don't know what it is. Um, but I'd probably say those times. Like I certainly remember, I actually remember, and maybe it's because there's a photo of it, but dad was shearing some alpacas for our neighbour and I remember that vividly. I was wearing my Winnie the Pooh pyjamas. I reckon that, yeah, I reckon that might be it. I love that it's alpacas because I feel like that might be a theme that we're going to have the whole time that we're working together. (laughs) Are we going to tell that story? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if we can. I don't think we can. It's had so much worse than what it is. It's not bad. It's just an old, it's just an alpaca story. <laughs> It'll come out one day. Yeah. So tell me, you finished high school. You were you're extremely academic at high school. You as as you said, you got pushed down other pathways, physics, mm. just sciences generally, English, etc. Yeah. Agriculture wasn't an option. Mm. You fell into seasonal work to earn money. Where did that? start to go from there? Like what, what were the options in front of you as you left high school? Um, so I had actually an interview for medicine, probably one of the strangest interviews I've ever been a part of. Didn't get in. I think that was, Adelaide. yeah, that was in Adelaide. So a lot of my offers were health, health sciences between Adelaide and Melbourne. I genuinely didn't know what I, what I loved, but I was very, very driven to make sure that I had options that at the end of the day, whatever I was going to build was going to be for myself. I was very independent from a very young age and that really drove me. And then, yeah, like falling into season, like I gen- I needed to earn enough money to go to university and I wanted to make something of myself and, you know, you get told that you've got to go to university to to do so and I've got some, yeah, wonderful friends and family that have made some, like, amazing, done amazing things and they haven't gone to university but university was my chosen path. So I started work, like, Grain harvest, rouse abouting, you know, it's big enough to throw a fleece then. <laughs> um, and ended up falling into a winery and probably grew my, my love for wine straight away. But they actually offered me a full-time job, my gaff year, and I think it was one of the ladies from the, the office said, Millie, like, you can travel with this. I didn't even have a passport, but I um, started talking to people and ended up landing myself a job in California, in Napa Valley. So I was in the cellar where once the grapes come in, we'd process them um, and make them into wine and, yeah, loved the work. So went to, got my passport um, and a visa, uh, went to California and lived there for a few months and, yeah, lived with a bloke from Moldova, a girl from New Zealand and worked with a lot of Mexicans and that was a pretty cool part of my gap year. And while I was over there, I was like, right, I, I think I want to be a vet. Go back to my love for animals. I think I want to be a vet. So as soon as I got back, I went 
back to University of Adelaide and had another weird um, interview process. And what makes them weird? I think okay, I'll explain. So, um, Adelaide, the Roseworthy campus, it was like all of these rooms, and you had a card on the front of doors, and you had two minutes to read the card, which was some real whack scenarios, and then you'd have to go in and talk to it for five minutes in front of this panel. You'd go out and then you'd move along. I think there was like six different stations. And I remember one of them vividly. It was like you're a mother of a few kids and you're on the committee for your school and you have to um, come up with like a fundraising plan that's different to normal. Like how are you going to do it? What did you do? I have no idea now. (laughs) Nothing intelligent, I'm not sure. But it was... (laughs) Yeah, I remember thinking, like, this is absurd and, like, it, it probably actually did put me off it a little bit. So when did another grain harvest, I was actually unloading a bloke's truck and I'd missed out on first round and had a second round offer come through. And I, um, yeah, I was like, oh, no. Like, I knew in my gut straight away. I was like, this is not it either. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do now? And the Harvest doesn't go forever. Yeah, yeah. And he, uh, he said, have you ever been to Perth? I was like, no, no, I've never been to WA. And he said, it's a, it's a good place. And so I looked up and I was like, okay. And I actually had already like said, I'm like, well, if I want, still want to be a vet and I want to transfer, then animal science, animal health at Murdoch University, that will be a, a good place to start. And I actually didn't tell many people about that offer, particularly probably my older sister, who was um, very much like if, you know, at the end of it you'll be a vet. And I did not want to do it for the title of it. Like I, I've always sought happiness and enjoyment in everything that I've done post-school. And so I knew straight away that that, yeah, I just knew in my guts it wasn't for me. Went across to Perth. Drove across to Nullivore in my 2003 Mitsubishi Magna. I don't think the windows worked. I don't think the aircon worked. The radio didn't work. Are you kidding? I did that three times. Did the Nullivore had... three times in my Magna. Did you wear headphones? I don't know what I did. Talk to any, myself. You can't make any Walkman jokes. I mean, you would have had your iPod. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we went iPod. How old do you think I am? Um, and Gen X? Yeah. <laughs> Z? Well, I don't know. Whatever one comes out millennial. Gen Z. Um, I actually always thought I was a millennial until I looked at the date. So I'm like, oh, I'm actually Gen Z. Mm, I was a TikToker. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, landed myself there, hated every animal science, animal health unit, and then did a little bit of work experience just to make sure that I'd made the right call. And I was like, yeah, nah, I hate, I, I just, I, I would make the world's worst vet. And so studied ag science, um, got out, like did it pretty quickly, did. Um, let's Let's touch on that. Quickly, being you normally do four subjects a semester, you're doing eight, so you're doing equivalent of a year's work every 12 weeks. Yeah, when you put it like that, I, get, I only did that for one year just to shave the year off. <laughs> Why? What was the rush? Um, just mad, I think. Honestly, yeah. honestly sometimes I'm, I don't know. I think I'd push myself, I'd done a couple of like cross institutional units, and then when it came down to it, they were like, well, you could actually finish pretty soon. And I was like, all right, sweet, I'll just do a heap of overload. And then I got a, like a bit of interest in a few more subjects. So I actually fin- finished with extra credits. And I think I'm the only person to ever do it in less than three years. Yeah, right. <laughs> a few carry habits. What were the extra ones you did? I did like client service skills and sheep and wool units. Okay. Yeah. Pretty broad. Yeah. And then where did it lead you? I uh, got a scholarship in the wool industry. 
my final year, which was which was great. Like I obviously doing so many units, my time to work was very limited. So I was working at a live export quarantine facility where all sheep go before they head on live export ships. So would do that and then yeah, got a scholarship and worked um at the Australian Wool Testing Authority. Love wool. Um that was a pretty fun few little months in, I guess, research and and whatnot there, but then ended up in Queensland. I got recommended for a job up there. I was really interested in the exclusion fencing that had occurred. So a lot of that area around Longreach is, is good sheep country, but they were having to run cattle. Um, and with all the exclusion fences, a lot of them were trying to move back into sheep and they had challenges in terms of like their ability to do it, sort of skipped that generation, but also infrastructure and everything like that. So I was in a role with a department uh, where I was, you know, helping facilitate some of that. I loved my time at Longreach. Longy. Longy. But at the same time, I I didn't probably get the reward from the work, definitely in some aspects of it, but I felt like I always had to break the rules to make a difference. Like I felt like there was a lot of red tape and there wasn't much flexibility. So I ended up did breaking the rules. I don't know. They used to say, like, oh, Millie, like is the general manager signed off on this? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> But I just wanted to make a difference, right? Like I could see things in that area that needed to be done. And, for example, they had to go down to New South Wales to get their, like, classes stencil. And during that was during COVID. And so they physically couldn't go and get any sort of accreditation. So I was like, right, well, let's bring, like, sharing wool handling training, everything up to to the area, which, you know, got in touch with people on your AWI and, and made it all happen. And so, yeah, probably didn't get all Through the approvals. The yeah. <laughs> This is how I still operate, by the way. Uh, Just a uh, warning. Just writing a few notes. Yeah. (laughs) Does all I know about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. (laughs) So, yeah, I was was there for almost a year. So, like, but genuinely driven to just try and make a positive impact? Mm, Probably. Have fun along the way, but yeah. And then you ended up going, how long were you in Long Range for? I think it was 10 months, maybe nine. Okay. Yeah. Haven't held a job for that long. Nah. <laughs> a few similarities here. <laughs> they tell you you should change jobs when you're up. Yeah. Up until your mid 20s. Yeah. Um, you're out <laughs> of them now. Until <laughs> around my age. No. Um, yeah. And then a director for the not for profit organization called Livestock Collective called me. I knew him and said, We got a job going. Um, I, yeah, I was really passionate. I was um, working at Live Export Facility during. University, it was good money and I loved it because when you were there you had, say, you had to do protocol for certain countries and you'd have like 12,000 sheep to, to drench or something so you'd just have a long day and you were just going at it with uh, with the crew around you. And I loved that, that I didn't have to necessarily think too hard. I loved the livestock work. I loved the break, I guess, for my for my brain and, um, yeah, being active and back with stock. Uh, during that time... In 2018, there was some really awful media footage released um, of the live export ship um, heading to the Middle East. And around that time, there was a group starting to to share the real story because it was sort of the first access that the industry had allowed people to have to, uh, yeah, to what really happens along that supply chain. Like we'd always operated that, oh, well, they don't have influence. And so, yeah, there was a group starting to to share the real story and that's the group that called me and eventually I that's what took me from Queensland back to to Western Australia and yeah I, I loved the reward 
from that job, um, which is actually my, yeah, just my last job before you, as you know. And, um, yeah, I think we spoke about the last few days. I think reward comes from that contribution to something that's bigger than yourself as an individual. And it certainly felt like I could use my little niche set of, of skills and love for particularly the sheep and wool industry and the people of Western Australia to have an impact and do things that whilst the, you know, the farmers, the truck drivers and everyone's there doing their own part of the job and doing it really, really well, I could be sharing that. Um, so yeah, that's what, that's what I've been, been doing. I want to, we'll come back to the the real story part, but I think probably a timely question. Um, that decision to leave, to leave a job that you genuinely really liked at what is quite a difficult time for so many people. Mm. I, we've chatted about it a little bit. I'd love to know, like, what, what did it take to actually walk away and what did it look like behind the scenes for you to actually make the decision to come and join us? Mm. I would say, like, I can make decisions without involving any decisions. Without involving anyone, like literally bypass everyone. <laughs> it was a really selfish <laughs> call. No, I was going to say I can make decisions without involving emotion and I've certainly done that for a lot. Like I said earlier, I'm a seriously independent person so I don't necessarily take on board a lot of what an emotion can have like an impact on a decision. And actually a mentor said to me recently, you don't ever make the right decision or the wrong decision, you make a decision and you make it right. And I think that's really rang true for me because I do things off a whim about, you know, like, oh yeah, I'll go to, I'll go to California. I don't even have a passport. Like, I, you know, I just, I, I do things because I am a very casual operator, but this one, I actually took time. I, yeah, you'd been speaking to me on and off and, and I think as job offers came in, I was always tried to get the mindset, okay, well, send me through what you've got. If it excites me, if it's something I might be interested in, I'll, I'll get back to you. And probably nothing really developed much further than that. There was nothing that really excited me until I started chatting to you. I was like, right, what well, humans of agriculture are doing is really aligned with with my values. But, yeah, behind the scenes, I guess there was so much um, demand and yeah, for that Western Australian sheep industry and that sort of issue crisis management mode and it sort of became um, almost like a responsibility, which I didn't mind because I wanted to do that for for my fellow. I actually enjoyed doing that for, for the people. Um, and, yeah, I guess super passionate that they are such an, like all agriculture sectors, an adaptable, resilient industry that was is being influenced by external factors that they can't control and that had come from or stemmed from misconceptions, um, people not being connected to the real story and the real people behind the scenes. And so the decision-making process I feel like was actually really selfish because I went, right, whilst I get so much reward and so much love for this and my team and my organisation, but what's good for me um, and what's going to have a great opportunity for me um, down in the future. And so, yeah, we spoke on the phone. I think I'd made the decision immediately. I sat on it and then I called. Oh, a good salesman. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> Selling the dream. I actually think I interrogated you for like <laughs> two hours. <laughs> it was like me interviewing you. Which is actually, I feel like, the way it should work. Yeah, well, good then because I did it. Mm. Done now. <laughs> yeah, it's too <laughs> late. Um, but I called a fella. Well, I was really... 
I wanted to make sure that there wasn't any emotion. Like I didn't want to call, say, my family and say, oh, my God, yes, come back to Victoria or, um, you know, my what I call my WA family and them say, no, no, like please stay in, in WA. Like it was like, no, I want a really objective sort of um, sounding board. So I called a guy and he said, yeah, like in your career, great opportunity to move on. And then I said, well, I'm going to. He said, yeah, like do it. So like, okay, right. And I still I like sat on person. it. <laughs> I still sat on it for a week. I made sure that I didn't necessarily write out pros and cons list, but I made sure that I thought my guts was right, that my change, that my decision didn't change. And then I called you and I said, yeah, right, I'll come. Let's do it. Let's do it. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. While you were with the Livestock Collective, mm-hmm. you chatted about it, sharing agriculture's real story. I think, like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend agriculture's perfect because it's not. There's lots of aspects of the industry which happen because we need to feed and clothe people and operate in a profitable way so people can continue to do it. Yeah. What did the Livestock Collective teach you in the power of sharing that real story, potentially like the repercussions of it, but then actually I guess the, the is gratitude the right word? But like I guess, I guess being grateful that you've put the, the real narrative out there. Yeah. Um, I guess it taught me that you can have a difference and it's I think we always talk about it now, like let's share all the positive stuff, like let's actually just be real because at the end of the day, that's what people want to connect with. It's not some glamorous, bedazzled, you know, thing. It's actually the real people, the real authentic people who genuinely dedicate their lives to feed and clothe people in Australia and overseas as well. So it taught me so much in terms of communities overseas, um, the influence that we can can have and how people in the broader community minds actually work. And so always having to be up to date with the latest research into, say, community sentiment, which is, has grown um, in the past five five years. So p- more people are accepting and trusting live export, um, sheep and cattle live export, um, what's actually driving that trust. And, yeah, I found that really rewarding. Um, but then it was certainly it was a huge challenge in my final few months because I want a, I want a really strong future for all of agriculture. And I guess my work was very centred around the, the sheep industry of Western Australia and there was so much angst, so much frustration um, and uncertainty on the ground and there still is. So that was really difficult to walk away from. That's where I think I was selfish. But that I think we had to really balance what well, I was really passionate about, balancing that you know, channel to, to federal parliament to say like, no, this is, this is what's happening. But then also not, you know, being inflammatory for people like the, the farmers and everyone along that supply chain and just how interconnected it is with all these other facets that it wasn't increasing that 
angst as well because I think that there is going to be a really strong future and everyone should have confidence that there's going to be a really strong future for the sector. And so trying to to balance that, that like, no, live export is a huge part of us being sustainable um, for, for so many different reasons, but also at the same time, like, <laughs> calm down, <laughs> like, everyone hold their horses, let's work together, like, it's, it's going to be okay. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, like I'll say, I'm, I'm not overly educated on it. My very high level opinion on it is like, it's part of us being good global citizens and mm-hmm. supporting food security for other countries and doing it in the way which we know in Australia, like our standards, which through what happened off the back of 2011, actually meant that an Australian product, if it's grown here, we need to be responsible for it to the point of slaughter um, and make sure that that animal's got a good life. And I think for us, like that is pretty incredible that you can put your hand on heart and oh, say that. Yeah, for sure. Like industry, oh, I don't want to say industry reform because I'm so fortunate to have met so many people that have been in the industry for 20, 30 plus years and they have been improving that whole time. They've been making incremental change. And those probably 2011 and 2018, those crisis events have really just accelerated that. But that's not to say the industry was sitting back going, oh, we're just, we're ticking along here. It's not like they were improving. They were dedicated to animal welfare for sure. Certain incidents, not having, um, yeah, I guess not having the drive to do it because they've, they've been able to. But then that acceleration from certain events has meant that there has been huge change. The industry that was, yeah, even four or five years ago is completely reformed to, to what it is today. Mm. Something I saw recently, like I love looking at different things that are happening in different spaces, but it was, um, it was the head of the PGA. And so the PGA was in competition with this group called Live Golf, um, Saudi, Saudi Arabian-backed alternative golf competition anyway. And he came forward. So that basically what happened, they were competitors butting heads. It was like PGA was saying, these guys are never, ever going to be part of our competition. People who support that aren't welcome in our kind of club. And then they've announced a merge over recent months. But what the, what the CEO came out, and I'm only like reading this again at a high level of things that are happening in the news, but he came forward and was like, at the time I was making decisions for our organisation based off the best information I had at the time. Now we've got all the information. My position has actually changed. People will call me a hypocrite and whatnot. Not a hypocrite, but I have learned and I acknowledge that I've got access to more information now so I can make better decisions around our position. And I was like, it's actually a really cool position to take. Yeah. And I think that was probably an opportunity for Minister Watt to take. Um, It's probably gone, I don't know. But I think we had a huge opportunity for him to be probably educated and really connected to how intrinsically differently Western Australia operates Uh, and it's not simple to just have another abattoir. Like people have no confidence in the sheep sector whatsoever now. So in the coming years they're more likely to not have enough supply for the abattoirs that they already have. So the argument like, you know, let's build abattoirs, it's, it's it's not a solution. It's flawed for so many reasons. And I think that if he had came to Western Australia understood the processes, understood the change, that the policy that they rehashed from the 2018 election does not reflect the industry that is today, then what an opportunity that would have been to stand behind and say, I'm sorry, like we we didn't have all the information. We were we were influenced by what we thought the animal standard animal welfare standards were and what we thought the Australian community believes. 
now we we are more educated, we have more information and we're going to actually work with the industry um, to continue improving. Like that just, it would have just changed the whole narrative. And oh, it would have been huge. I mean, we've yeah. got more supporters in various sectors. Yeah. Um, it would have been really interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, um, it is really unfortunate, but I think, like you said about that, that merging, it reminded me of of just how united all of agriculture is. So whilst we operate in silos, I've always been hugely passionate and particularly as a facilitator of events, the best events is where you have people from not only all along the supply chain, but different sectors as well. And everyone's curious about how other people operate and you can learn so much about other people. But during this time of crisis in the Western Australian sheep live export industry, you know, it, they had the backing of of grains, cattle, like everyone came together and said, actually, no, this is a line that cannot be crossed. What precedent does this set for the future of all sectors? And in my yeah, very short career, that's probably one of, been one of the most rewarding things is that everyone uniting and, and banding together. So let's change tact a little bit. We're going to come into humans of agriculture. And I think on that piece of bringing together industries, mm. we've we've spent a bit of time and acknowledging you're only, what, 10 days in. Um, <laughs> but I think, what, like, you get it. You get what we're about. And that was a huge part for me about bringing someone else into our business was, like, where's someone who is, what was the word I used? Um, eloquently relatable. Eloquently relatable, <laughs> yeah. Uh, heads are falling to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think for us, like, there's that need to be able to communicate and relate with people at the farm level at school level, at, um, at yeah, agri-professional levels. But then also we get some really interesting seats and opportunities to sit down with CEOs and whatnot mm. and not pretending that we can talk to them about that business level but being able to talk to them about, I guess, issues, challenges, opportunities and the need around the narrative of agriculture to mm. shift and bringing people together. So that's, I think, a, a huge part of like I've been looking for a long time of like where's this person <laughs> Um, right here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just had to convince her to come. Um, and so I think for us, like, to be honest, uh, like two young people who are, I guess, at the front thinking progressively about where actually agriculture is going about saying like, this is the industry today. This is how we're going to do it better in the future, but not. And, and I love that you use the word curious, cause that's a huge one that I use. And I think that's where in conflict, in learning, if you're curious, you're going to open up opportunities as opposed to close them down. So for our community, um, we've chatted about it a little bit, but in your words, like what is humans of agriculture trying to achieve? I think bring people along to the journey of what agriculture is to really enlighten them and maybe shift that stigma that agriculture is just, you know, a bloke standing out in a paddock with a bit of straw in his mouth and a, a big hat. It's so much more than that, it's progressive, it's entrepreneurstic. Is that how you say that word? Opportunistic. Entrepreneurstic. Entrepreneurial? Entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> Entrep- I don't I'm know. I think not. you made up a word. Entre- <laughs> That's a word. Entrepreneurstic. Yeah. Oh, well, it might not be. Scrap that. Fact um, check that one. <laughs> <laughs> Blooper. No, I think that, you know, we're, we're, the industry is full of all these people and to – 
feed and clothe genuinely Australians and the world or people and communities around the world, it isn't just farmers. There's so many other people that are involved, even if it's just their, you know, insurances and finance people, all the way to the, the technology and the research that's being done so that agriculture isn't what it was a few years ago and in a few years it's not going to be what it is today. And so really bringing people along for that journey and, and shifting that stigma that of what agriculture actually is and we can do that through humans and, and storytelling. So uh, something I um, think about, does it make you uncomfortable when people be like the what do you do or what does humans of agriculture do and being like, oh, we, we're just storytellers? We Sometimes just it is hard to science and can I swear on here? Go for it. <laughs> we actually talk shit for a living. <laughs> so- <laughs> Like we're good at it, we're eloquently relatable, but we we get paid to do this and I actually don't because how often do you hear it's in all peak industry bodies that they need to be building trust and um, like accepting that consumer expectations are changing. Everyone's got it in their, in their what do you call it, strategic priorities. The remit. Yeah. Everyone's talking about it like, oh, like – but we, you know, there's this frustration on the ground that people don't understand. And it's like, well, we're here doing it. So mm. now nah, it drives me. I'm driven. Let's do it. It's so funny because I feel like not, not even an impossible, like to me, it's genuinely like, how on earth is this my job? <laughs> to your point, yeah. talking shit, literally just chatting to people, mm. sharing stories, creating connections. And it's like, one, how, how can I do it? Or how can we do it? And two, like, how's this a business? which I think like pinches myself. But then I think that's where, as you say, like you go and chat in these industry forums and people are like, we need to share our story, we need to do this. Yeah, and it's like, are you guys like living under a freaking hole? <laughs> Have you not seen what humans have actually been doing for the last yeah. four years? Like we're literally proving that through storytelling, people are genuinely connected to it. But on the other side too, like we're building a business. Like there's Commercial opportunities in this content that we create because people genuinely like it. Businesses love it. Yeah. Um, and I think we can just kind of keep like fumbling our way through and working it out. Like, yeah. Oh, but like who's who's not fumbling? <laughs> Seriously. That's one thing I'm learning. Yeah. As we chat with different people. Yeah, for sure. Everyone like has their own little struggle. Some people, I don't even know if the word faking it till you make it's the right one, but it's like, yeah, people just are making decisions and then making another one off the back of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's almost leadership, isn't it? Like make a call and, and make it the right one. Mm. Um, I was thinking last night because we've chatted a little bit about competitors and stuff and I think about it a little bit. And then I was like, actually, you know what? Millie's like, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the I was thinking about the music industry mm? because this the last week I've just become like I knew of Lewis Capaldi, but God, I'm his biggest fan. I, t- I couldn't tell you how many times I've watched these videos and I've tried watching them from every angle. Like that that concert at Glastonbury is honestly like the best moments of humanity, I reckon, where someone's struggling and everyone else just comes and supports him. But I was thinking about it in like the music context and this content space, like other people can come and and there are a few others that are playing in this space, but like we consume so much content um, that humans of agriculture is never going to be people's sole need or f- fulfil all their desires for content so someone else can come and do it. But I still reckon in our little, like, pockets 
similar to like the music industry. You don't just because there's Lewis Capaldi, you don't listen to Taylor Swift. <laughs> Taylor Swift, you got tickets? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're doing giveaway. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to pick the listeners. <laughs> Not. But like, and I think that's the part that excites me too. It's mm. like, yeah, one, we're solving a genuine problem. We're working with businesses to help them address it. But two, we're also showing others that there's ways that they can do it. But I think it has to be led by people, not brands. Yeah. Well, people become your brand, don't they? Mm. Let's chat about the the week we've had. We went up to Sydney to the school student, 500-odd school students um, at the Royal, what was it, Sydney Olympic Park. Takeaways, honest thoughts. I actually, I've done a lot of, you know, public speaking and engaging with people on those sorts of platforms, but not a lot with high school students, like a lot more with tertiary students. So it was so interesting, the broad diversity of what those students were. Like we had a group of year nines and they go, oh, you know, and we asked them after a bit of a chat what they, what they wanted to do. And everyone, like all of those year nine students had it all laid out. And then the next group were like, oh yeah, we don't know. Yeah. And then the next group might be one or two um, that had some really unique plans. Like remember that young girl that said, oh, well, my family property is a, a few hours west of Tamworth and there's not many health services out there. So I want to, you know, develop my skills and build those services but then also enjoy the farm life. I was like, go you girl. That's mm. awesome. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, but I also think that there was opportunity to do that a lot better. And so, yeah, as as an industry, how do we make agriculture, like I said before, so it's not just the farmer, it's all these different facets of it that these young people, that they're our future and if they're passionate about working with sustainability, you know, things like global warming and climate change, like we're going to have to be better at producing food and fibre. So if they want to be part of something that's bigger than yourself, then agriculture is is almost a brilliant place to be. And mm. so getting that message across and they're probably in full honesty and I might have to cut this out, I don't think that all the groups that were along at that event were sharing that great message. There was probably some niche sort of, um, God, how do I say this in an eloquently relatable way? No, yeah. Do you, you know what I mean? You were there. I know exactly, yeah, what you're meaning. And, and I think so... What I've been thinking about literally only happened yesterday, but maybe earlier this year, I sat in a room. It was only like 20 or 30 people. The CEO of a large agribusiness organisation was saying that to them, like they don't invest in graduate programs because people straight into the workforce won't give them the return they need to support shareholders. (laughs) Ollie saw red. My frustration is, like, if I think of businesses in agriculture, they go, yeah, today or for us, like, small business, flights to and from Sydney, our time, to be honest, it's probably like a $2,000 endeavour that we spent. And did we get a return for it, like, in dollar terms? No. Do we have to be in that room for the future of agriculture? Yes. And do... Does the industry need to be there? I'd say yes. And the fact that the bigger players weren't. Okay, so let's yeah. let's defend them in one sense and say, okay, they didn't know about it. Cool. Now they know about it because humans of agriculture is going to make them aware of it. <laughs> but 
if we want this sector to thrive, businesses need to actually start to cough up and go, we need to be in the room. And you don't need to send your CEO, but send people who are eloquently relatable to like these students because otherwise the sector, like you can't just expect to take from it, you've actually got to put in a day of our time and actually I think for me there's these like little drivers or probably like the pet peeves and there's a few that happen. It's happened in news and media of agriculture that I don't think it's done very well. Mm -hmm. The way that we share information about careers and opportunities, not done very well. Humans of agriculture is trying to address two of those things. And then in terms of careers and events, like we chatted about it. If that was a mining industry event, your BHPs, your Rios, like everyone would be there. And I think, um, and we chat about it, the, that group out of Sydney, small organisation running careers opportunities, careers education for high school students, putting resources into schools, Rio Tinto gave them $2.8 million over three years. Yeah. And we're not saying like agriculture needs to be investing big dollars like that, but no one's, where's the investment? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we just sit waiting for RDCs or someone to cough it up. Yeah. And they're our, like, those kids are our future solution makers. Like, they're, they're it. So if we're not investing in them and showing the opportunities that we have, then, yeah, where, where do we expect the future to be? Mm, rant over. Okay. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> everyone. <laughs> we just wanted to get that one off the chest. Yeah, we feel better now. <clears throat> yeah. It's like therapy. Yeah. <laughs> we should do this every week. <laughs> Once a month. Uh, okay. Um, let's talk funniest moments so far since you joined the Humans of Act <laughs> It'd have to be you. Oh, leaving the banner in the taxi. <laughs> Do you reckon? <laughs> Which was obviously your fault, not mine, but I think it was more when you, when you told me that you did it. I laughed so hard. I honestly thought I was going to wet myself. I was like, I'm always thinking as shit, second week on the job, I'm going to wet myself in front of my boss. <laughs> I would have actually said the funniest moment was, uh, <laughs> was the seagull sitting there having lunch. <laughs> And literally the food's put on the table. Seagulls of all creatures. They've got freaking web feet just came in and took the squid. <laughs> just took the squid and flew off. No, I think the funniest was you being so scared after that. I just ate. Ollie was there, like, defending. Well, <laughs> you got to eat because I was keeping the birds away. Yeah, yeah this is what happens. Um, oh, hang on, one more. Beating you in basketball. That was on the first time. So we're at one apiece now. Okay, yeah, well, but the first one counts more. Yeah, but the second one was like a dominating one <laughs> by me. <laughs> Had a bad day, all right? <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's enough. Um, a question, I was listening to Damien Hardwick's an interview with him recently. What are a few things that you do that help you have a good day? Definitely exercise. I think when I'm in a good, I don't know, I like you get energy from the exercise and things. Um, what else helps me have a good day? People. Winnie. Winnie Blue, of course. Winnie. Can I say Winnie? Winnie Blue. <laughs> my, little, my little Jack Russell. Adore her. She definitely helps me have a good day when she's not being a little turd. Um, yeah. I, I, I am pretty lucky. I very rarely have bad days. But I also like looking forward to things. Like I love having plans on the weekend with my mates, different adventures. Um, why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> I'm laughing because we've gone this whole time without saying Collingwood and I'm just <laughs> waiting for you to bring it up. I thought you were going to tease me about it, so I've been holding it in. <laughs> um, helps me have a good day when Collingwood are 
oh, you've seen my Instagram. Like it's just, it's it's all through. I just watch Collingwood reels. I'm like, yeah, Collingwood win. It's it's just such an exciting time. So <laughs> like we're doing so well. It's just like, oh, okay, that's just cool. Okay, sorry. Shoot <laughs> all my scarf. God damn. Um, okay, I've got a couple of questions left. But next year there's the, I love these cards. Yes. We've only used two of them. Pick one. Don't pick the first one. Like, pick a card out. Show the camera. Then like hold it up. Way way closer to the camera. Like that we've got ready because I shake so much. (laughs) What is your definition of luck? Do you believe in luck? That's not the question I know, but definition of luck. And we've both got to answer this. I think when un- things that are unlikely to happen, happen, but I think you can have an influence in that. I feel like it's being in the right place at the right time mm. and having the previous experience to be able to, like, make the most of it or capitalise on mm. it or something. Yeah, I like that. I'm always a big believer that everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. And so that's genuinely been, like, I think I first read that quote in Year 9 and that has driven me so much through, yeah, a lot of my childhood and and whatnot, like that has kept me going. And so I think in terms of, of luck, even if something, you know, happens, like I, I think there is there's always something that we're working towards and as long as we keep on moving forward, then you don't have to rely on luck. Say that one again. If it is to be, what, which one? You're saying? Oh, everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. I like that. You know the other, other one I loved that came through? This is like a little inspirational piece. Yeah, of course the inspired unemployed. Yeah, the every good idea has been borrowed. The, the one I love was the one we got through the email this week and when opportunity knocks, know the sound. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. I liked that one as well. Okay. Oh, do we do? Yeah, let's do. <laughs> My joke. Well, we'll come that. We'll finish on jokes. Yeah, I'm so excited. Let's just ask everyone we kind of said it yesterday but you had the chance to chat to your 10 students the last few days what was your message to them like why should they think about agriculture as a career I think we spoke about is that contributing to something that's bigger than you as an individual so if people are passionate um, and willing to learn people will take you on and I have had men women like everyone nurture my career into the industry and I think it has come a lot down down to that attitude um, of wanting to wanting to learn, wanting to work hard. And so, yeah, there's so many opportunities. Like, oh, my God, it literally taken me overseas already when I was 18, didn't even have a passport. Like you, there is so much opportunity, there's so much diversity and there's so much reward and all you need is a good attitude. 100%. Mm. Okay. The moment you've been waiting for all morning. Do you want me to read my? Do you want me to do my joke first? You can do your joke first. Let's see if you make me laugh. Is it a challenge to not laugh or just to give it a genuine <laughs> reaction? <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm have to turn the mic down a little bit for people. <laughs> what did the mum cow say to the calf? <laughs> it's past your bedtime.
no. Surely everyone in the audience is going to be okay. That was quite good, was what I am. Was that good? It's pretty funny once I got it. Cool. Okay. Yeah, I don't know what I'm working with. <laughs> Hit me. All right. So mine, it's okay. I knew that this question was coming just from um, listening to your podcast and watching videos on Instagram. So I've known even before I started when I was driving across the Nullarbor to make it to Geelong and start this job that this was coming. That you needed to have a joke. Yeah, I needed to have a joke. And so this isn't actually a joke. This is a really funny story. Okay. And then well, I've got a joke. That's not part of it. No, it is. Okay. All right. But it's, it was when I was I was driving across the Nullarbor and I was just like, I was new home at this stage, visiting my family for a quick night before coming to Geelong. And I was driving, my dad came across and, and drove with me. He's in the passenger seat near home and driving along. I hit a hair on the road and like got a hundred, going a hundred, got a trailer on, like, you know, kept driving. Anyway, there's these cop lights, that police lights started coming on behind me and I was like, Bloody hell, I've got cruise control on. Don't know. I was like, oh, I had a bit of trouble with my trail lights. Maybe it's that, whatever. Pulled over and I was chatting to him. He goes, yeah, so you hit a hair back there. And I was like, yeah. He goes, it's new law. Like if you hit any animal part of wildlife, you you have to turn around and go and check it. And I was like, oh, for God's sake. All right. So I'm like trying to turn around <laughs> with my trailer on. And nightmare. Anyway, get back there. The hair's dead. I'm like, look, like, I'm, I'm sorry, like the, I've killed the hair. And he goes, hang on. Um, and he sort of kicks in, buggerizing around, and then he pulls out this spray can and sprays the hair, and the hair hops up and jumps away. And me and my dad, Joey, are like, what the hell? What, what on earth is that stuff? He goes, oh, hairspray. <laughs> <laughs> Your reaction. Oh, no, I gotta wake myself a catch and have had that coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to keep a straight face. It was a, a long one. Okay, I've got one more. Do you know what la leave means in French? No, long. The hair. The hair doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got one more. Run me over. This one's a short one. <laughs> um, we're at school and kid called Norman falls off the monkey bars and the teacher goes, quick, call an ambulance. Call Norman an ambulance. So all the kids circuit around. Norman's an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> you can blame my dad for these. Yeah. Well, Millie, I'm sure it's not the – it is the first time. I'm sure it's not the last time that you're going to be on the podcast. <laughs> but, um, no, I reckon it would be interesting to see what our community, our crew think. Well, if they stuck around to the joke at the end. I hope not. <laughs> Thanks, Mill. Thanks, Ollie. Been Ciao. fun. Let's get to work. Yeah. See ya. <laughs>